Today, as in Peter's day, we live in a world that is hostile towards believers. Peter writes this epistle to exhort and encourage scattered, suffering, and slandered believers to stand for Christ amidst paganism and godlessness. Already he has addressed the behavior of believers towards suffering. Now in 1 Peter 4, 1-6, Peter addresses three specific responsibilities that as believers we must maintain in a hostile world. Responsibility number one, we must be prepared to suffer. Responsibility number two, we must live according to the will of God. And responsibility three, we are not to live like an unbeliever. We're going to begin in verse 1 with responsibility 1, be prepared for suffering. 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The term therefore connects to the previous pericope, 1 Peter 3, 18-22, where Peter enunciated upon Christ's sufferings. It should be no surprise that you and I must be prepared for suffering. Since Christ has suffered, you and I can expect to suffer as well. Peter previously established this truth back in chapter 2 and verse 21, since Christ also suffered for you. No doubt he's recalling the words of Christ in John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. However, as Peter previously demonstrated, Christ's suffering in the flesh, that is his body, resulted in his glorification. Therefore, you and I must remember that our sufferings are a precursor to our living hope and eschatological salvation. That is the imperishable and undefiled inheritance reserved in heaven as we read back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. The verb arm is a command and means to be prepared or equipped. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. It is a military term that depicts the Christian life to that of a soldier. Romans chapter 13 and verse 12. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 2 Corinthians 6, 7. In the word of truth and the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Ephesians 6, 11-13. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. A soldier's life requires discipline and determination. As soldiers, you and I are to equip ourselves through discipline and determination for suffering. That which we are to arm ourselves with is that same purpose. 
The term purpose refers to an attitude or way of thinking. That means we are to equip ourselves with the same thinking or attitude as Christ. And the thinking of Christ is demonstrated in a willingness to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Having the same attitude as Christ does not mean that you and I are to deliberately seek martyrdom. As Peter explained in 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. When Christ controls your inner person, you are going to exhibit His same attitude when facing suffering. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Instead of fighting for His rights, instead of defending Himself, Christ surrendered to the suffering. That is the attitude or thinking that we must demonstrate, particularly during times of suffering. We are called to humility, believer. And a humble believer is a believer whose Lord is Christ. If you are not humble, it's because you have not submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ. You need to look at your life, and you need to ask yourself before a holy God, Am I a humble person? Am I submitting myself under Christ's lordship? And I'll tell you, when suffering comes into your life, it will reveal whether or not you're humble. How you respond to suffering will speak volumes as to whether or not you're humble, which in turn will demonstrate whether or not you're living under the lordship of Christ. If suffering comes into your life and your immediate reaction, your gut reaction is to try to avoid it or curtail it or whatever to get out of it, rather than sitting back and saying, Lord, what do you have for me in this? Then the honest evaluation is you're not living under his lordship. His Lordship brought that into your life for a reason and a purpose, and you need to find out what that purpose is. Now the next phrase in verse 1, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, has created some interpretive issues. First, some interpret the He as Jesus Christ. Such an interpretation would imply then that Jesus ceased from sin. If Jesus ceased from sin through suffering, then Christ was a sinner. Peter's already established that Christ was sinless back in 1 Peter 2.22 and 3.18. Second, some interpret the he as Christians who have died with Christ to the power of sin. Now that sounds good. The interpretation is based upon Romans 6.7, For he who has died is free from sin. However, a word of warning. As biblical interpreters, we must be careful of imposing Paul's writings on Peter's writings and vice versa. We must consult the context of each passage to determine if the same thought is in view. Upon examination, the contexts are vastly different. Paul used metaphorical language in Romans 6 to depict believers as dying with Christ, whereas Peter uses literal language 
to describe the actual suffering of believers. The third interpretation is that the term he refers to Christians whose suffering for righteousness sake is evidence that they have broken with a life of sin. The phrase ceased from sin is not to be interpreted as you or I attaining sinless perfection. That would be a denial of 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The term ceased here means to discontinue an activity or to break with something. The perfect tense of the verb indicates that this break with sin occurred at a point in the past and continues into the present. The point at which you and I broke with sin was salvation. Further, the passive voice of the verb means that this break with sin was not done by us, but to us. That is, God caused us to stop being controlled by sin or living in habitual sin. Thus, Peter's emphasis is that you and I, who humble ourselves and willingly endure suffering for righteousness' sake, demonstrate that God has broken sin's dominion over our lives. Remember, Peter's point is that suffering believers experience it for righteousness sake, not for sin. If you're suffering for sin, you brought that on yourself, okay? But if you're not suffering for sin, you're suffering for righteousness sake, that's different. When believers suffer for righteousness sake, it demonstrates that sin no longer dominates our lives. It also is a means of witnessing to the pagan, unbelieving world. As well, consider that how you behave in suffering is going to reveal whether or not you have the same attitude as Christ. Now we come to verse 2, and we have responsibility to. So our first responsibility is to be prepared for suffering. We've got to be prepared. It's going to come. Second responsibility is that we have to live according to the will of God. We have to live according to the will of God. 1 Peter 4.2 So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Now the phrase, so as, is called a preposition of purpose. A preposition of purpose. It shows the purpose to thinking like Christ. Thinking like Christ leads us to our second responsibility. When we think like Christ, we're no longer going to live according to the flesh. Now to live is to act in a specific manner. The rest of time refers to one's remaining time on earth. The phrase is meant to remind us of the brevity of life. Because life is short, you and I need to redeem the time. The flesh refers to our physical body. See, by arming ourselves with the mind of Christ, or the thoughts of Christ, the attitude of Christ, we're going to redeem the remainder of our physical 
lives for the will of God. Now notice that there are two specific manners of living presented in verse 2. You can live for the lust of men or the will of God. Previously in 1 Peter 1.14, we were commanded not to mold ourselves to the former lust. Lust are excessive and self-indulgent cravings that satisfy our carnal appetites. And carnal appetites include such things as sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, which Peter will address later here in verse 3. Peter referred to these lusts as fleshly in 1 Peter 2.11, commanding us to abstain from fleshly lust. Fleshly denotes the weaknesses of people. The command to abstain from fleshly lust indicates that we are not exempt from these lusts. These lusts or desires are fleshly, because they provide some degree of physical enjoyment, albeit temporary. And the only prescription for fleshly lust is to abstain from or actively keep away from them. On the other hand, we are to live for the will of God. And the topic of God's will is an oft-discussed topic amongst believers. Volumes of books have been written regarding discovering and doing God's will. However, my friend, you can skip the books and the pontifications of people. God has revealed His will in His Word. Now, just keeping to the context of this epistle, Peter has up to the current text given 14 items that are God's will for our lives. Somebody says, well, what's God's will for my life? Open the Bible. There's 14 just up through 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. First, God's will is for believers to submit to human government. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Second, His will is for us to treat others with respect and love. 1 Peter 2, 17. Third, God's will is for us to reverence Him, 1 Peter 2.17. Fourth, His will is for us to submit to our employers, 1 Peter 2.18. Fifth, God's will is for believing husbands and wives to submit to one another, 1 Peter 3.1-7. Sixth, His will is for us to be a blessing to all, 1 Peter 3.8-9. Seventh, God's will is for us to not be afraid of suffering, 1 Peter 3.14. Eighth, His will is for us to set apart Christ as Lord of our hearts, 1 Peter 3.15. Ninth, God's will is for us to make a defense of orthodoxy, 1 Peter 3.15. Tenth, His will is for us to keep a good conscience, 1 Peter 3.16. Eleventh, His will is for us to be prepared to suffer for doing good, 1 Peter 3.17. Twelfth, His will is for us to be finished with sin, 1 Peter 4.1. Thirteenth, God's will is for us to reject fleshly desires, 1 Peter 4.2. And fourteenth, God's will is for believers to not live according to the conduct of Gentiles or unbelievers, 1 Peter 4.3. Now there's just fourteen things 
in the, in the first four chapters, not even the full four chapters, of 1 Peter that outlines God's will for your life. How are you doing in regard to these things God wills or desires for your life? You need to ask that question. You need to look at yourself. Stop pointing the fingers at everybody else. Point the finger back at yourself and ask yourself, am I submitting to human government? Am I treating others with respect and love? Am I reverencing God? And am I submitting to my employer? If I'm a husband or wife, am I submitting to one another? Am I, am I a blessing to everyone? Am I afraid of suffering or not? Is Christ the Lord of my heart? Have I submitted to that? Am I making a defense of orthodoxy or what I believe? Am I keeping a good conscience? Am I prepared to suffer for good? Am I finished with sin? Am I rejecting fleshly desires? Or am I still living according to the life of an unbeliever? You don't need books to tell you how to discern God's will. You have the book that tells you what God's will is for your life. And if we would simply open the Bible and from page to page, cover to cover, go through and discover everything that God wills for us, then when it comes to other issues, we're not going to question what God's will is in, in those areas because we're already going to know, well, this is what God says here, and this is what God has said here, and this is what God has said here. Your responsibility in a hostile world is to live according to the will of God. And Christian, it's high time you open the Bible for yourself. From the parts you like to the parts that are, you don't like to discover what God's will is for your life. Well, pastor, can't you tell me what God's will is for my life? Yeah, I can. As I'm preaching the text and as you're listening to the text, but I only get you for an hour or two, maybe three a week. How about all the other time that you're on your own? How about opening the pages of Scripture up and discovering what God has for your life? Doing the will of God will lead you to your third responsibility, to not live like an unbeliever. Sadly, there's a lot of believers, quote-unquote, living just that way. Living like unbelievers. You can't tell the difference if they're a believer or not. And yet, that's our responsibility, to not live like an unbeliever. Verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. First Peter 4, 3-6. 
Now the term for spells out why we should live the remainder of our physical lives doing God's will. The time already passed, that's our life before Christ. Before salvation, you and I carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Now the word carried out means to perform something wholly and thoroughly. The desires denotes someone's course of action or conduct. And since Peter's initially writing to Jewish believers, Gentiles refers to a people who do not trust the God of Israel or Jesus as the Messiah. Thus, to carry out the Gentiles' desires indicates that believers were wholly and thoroughly conducting themselves as unbelievers before salvation. Peter states that we have had sufficient or more than enough time to act in such a manner. You've had plenty of time to act like an unbeliever. Now that you're a believer, it is time to stop living according to the Gentiles' conduct. Now Peter provides a sketch of that conduct. And while not a complete sketch, this is likely a list of sins that his readers had previously committed and perhaps were being tempted by them. The verbal phrase, having pursued a course, means to conduct oneself or behave in a particular manner. First, unbelievers conducted themselves or behaved for sensuality. Sensuality refers to a lack of restraint and indulging in all kinds of evil and moral impurity. That the term is in the plural form indicates multiple acts of evil and moral impurity. Another term for sensuality is depravity. Such a person has no shame or restraint. So the, the, way, or the, the, the way of an unbeliever is the way of sensuality. They commit moral impurities, evils. They have no shame, no restraint. Second, unbelievers live for lust. Lust are excessive and self-indulgent cravings that satisfy one's carnal appetites. In the New Testament, the term is al almost always refers to a bad sense of evil desires. As well, the term describes passions that displace one's proper affections for God. And friend, when you give in to your lust, you lose all control over your lust. You don't control your lust, your lust controls you. Third, unbelievers live for drunkenness. Drunkenness refers to the excessive consumption rather, of alcohol. This same Greek term is also used to depict debauchery. Thus, the term drunkenness can be applied to any activity in which one abandons all restraints in order to pursue pleasures. So it's not just drunkenness. That's wrong, okay? Believers were not to be out there getting drunk. But it includes any type of activity in which we would abandon all restraints in order to pursue the pleasure. Listen, it doesn't have to just be alcohol. It can include any number of activities. 
If you'll abandon all restraint to pursue pleasure of that activity, that falls under drunkenness. Fourth, unbelievers live for carousing. The word carousing here refers to riots and gatherings that lead to degeneracy, impurity, and gross obscenities. Now, Joseph Thayer provides a definition of carousing within the Greco-Roman culture. He states that carousing refers to nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus, that's a Roman deity, or some other deity, and sing and play before the houses of their male and female friends. Fifth, unbelievers live for drinking parties. And such drinking parties involve unrestrained imbibing of alcohol, which ends in immorality and orgies. Sixth, unbelievers live for abominable idolatries. The word abominable refers to something indecent, immoral, or disgusting. And idolatry is the worship of a false god. There are the behaviors, not a complete list, but some of the behaviors that unbelievers demonstrate. Christian, you're not supposed to demonstrate those type of things. You're not supposed to live for those type of things. Now again, you can go through the different epistles and you'll notice different lists. Some of them overlap. But you can get a complete picture of what life without Christ is like. And none of those things should be evident in your life now as a believer. Peter goes on to state that the Gentiles are surprised that believers do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. The verb, are surprised, means to think something strange. See, unbelievers think it's strange when we don't want to participate in what they regard as customary. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, they viewed participation in public festivals held in the honor of the gods as one's civic duty. So when a believer didn't participate in such festivals, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, thought it strange. Furthermore, the behaviors to which Peter just referred were often associated with these pagan festivals. Now, the use of the Greek term strange, or excuse me, are surprised, exenazo, is a play off of Peter's earlier statement that believers are aliens and strangers who are to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11. That Peter commands us to abstain indicates that these fleshly lusts still tempt us, though we are redeemed and sanctified. As Thomas Schreiner states, because believers are aliens and strangers, they, quote, do not share the values and aspirations of the surrounding society, not fitting into the social fabric. See, believer, we're to be different. Are you different? Or do you just go along with these pagan behaviors because you don't want to be maligned or 
You don't want to be slandered. You don't want to be thought to be different. I got news for you, Christian. If you're truly a child of God, you are different. You are to be distinct. You're to be holy as He is holy. Therefore, it's time for you to break with these behaviors of the unbelievers and be prepared to suffer what may come. Peter refers to these six behaviors as dissipation. That is, senseless or reckless behaviors. And he qualifies dissipation by the term excesses, a term used to refer to something that flows out of a sewer. That's right. He said those behaviors belong in the sewer. Thus, these Gentile behaviors are not only senseless and reckless, they are compared to sewage, something filthy. The verb do not run means to run together or join together into an activity. It also means to plunge into something. Hence, believer, we are not to plunge into the sewage of unregenerate behaviors. Now, some of you may need to take a spiritual bath. You need to invoke 1 John 1, 9 and get some cleansing. Because you've been imbibing in these behaviors. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be distinct. Your responsibility is to not live like an unbeliever. Now, because the Gentiles find it strange that believers do not engage in their reckless and filthy behavior, they malign believers. Now, that word malign, blasphemio, means to attack someone's good name or hurt their reputation. Now, contextually, outraged by Christians' failures to participate in their pagan activities considered normal within the Greco-Roman culture, these Gentiles spread lies about the believers. For example, Cornelius Tacitus, 56 to 120 AD, states that Nero, quote, executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians who were, infam excuse me, who were infamous for their abominations. Did you catch that? What abominations were the Christians committing? None. But because they were different, here's where the maligning began. The originator, he goes on to say, the originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, and though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again. Therefore, first, those were seized to admit their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for the hatred of the human race. Did you catch that? They were accusing Christians of hating the human race. He goes on to say, And perishing, they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame, and when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. This was written by Cornelius Tacitus, who lived during the time of the writing of this epistle. Now, i got to be honest. No one here in the United States of America has 
suffered to that degree. There are people in other parts of the world, other Christians, who have suffered to that degree. So, the little bit of suffering that we're experiencing ought to roll off our back. The little bit of suffering that we're experiencing shouldn't cause us to shudder and fall apart. We're standing on the shoulders of men and women who suffered far worse than we did. And yet, we're prepared to suffer, continue to submit to the will of God, and continue to refuse to live like an unbeliever. Such were the sufferings and slander which Peter's readers endured. Now, we can take comfort in knowing that these Gentiles do not malign us with impunity. Peter states that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter reminds us of this judgment against unbelievers not to encourage vindictiveness on our part. Instead, he does so to assure us that God will vindicate our perseverance through the slandering and suffering. That phrase, will give an account, is judicial language. And the living and the dead was a proverbial saying common amongst early Christians. Peter used this proverb in his sermon preached at Cornelius' house, Acts 10.42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. As well, Paul invokes the same proverb in his epistles, Romans 14.9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now this proverb conveys the idea that all people, regardless of their current status, will be judged either by Christ or his Father. Peter previously introduced God the Father as the judge in 1 Peter 1.17 and 2.23. Now, Christ is going to judge all believers at the rapture, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Christ will judge all people at his return when he separates believers into his kingdom and unbelievers into hell. Matthew 25.31-34 and 41. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. God the Father will judge all unbelievers at the great white throne. Revelation 20, 11-15 Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in this book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, Peter's point in verse 5 is that these unbelievers, enjoying the favors and privileges of the Greco-Roman paganism, will one day stand in God's courtroom and be judged by him. Now, verse 6 presents another interpretive difficulty. What is meant by the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead? The phrase for this purpose points ahead to the end of verse 6, to elucidate the reason for preaching to the dead. Now, to interpret his statement, we must understand the meaning of the term dead. Some interpret the dead to refer to those who are spiritually dead. And while this interpretation would fit with Paul's theology about spiritual death, it must be rejected. Nowhere in Peter's epistle does he use the term dead for spiritual death. The term dead is used in verse 5 to refer to the physically dead. There's nothing in the text to change the usual meaning of the term from verse 5 to verse 6. Others interpret the term dead to refer to those who died before the death of the Messiah. The idea is that when Christ died and went down into Sheol, that he preached the gospel to the dead. And as with the preceding viewpoint, such an interpretation must be rejected for several reasons. One, as previously noted in 1 Peter 3.19, the proclamation, Russo, which Christ made, was not the gospel. Peter consistently uses the term euangelizo in his epistle to denote the gospel. Verse 12 of chapter 1, verse 25 of chapter 1, and again here in chapter 4, verse 6 and 17. Two, Christ made this proclamation to the demons imprisoned in Tartarus, not the dead. Three, the passive usage of the verb, the gospel has been preached in 1 Peter 4, 6, cannot refer to the preaching done by Christ, but to the preaching about Christ. And four, it's impossible to be saved after death. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed to men once to die, and after this comes judgment. The only interpretation of the term dead that fits the context is that it refers to those who believed the gospel while alive, but later died. Now again, let's consider what's happening within the context of 1 Peter. Believers are suffering and being slandered. Peter wrote to these believers to encourage them regarding their resurrection and heavenly inheritance. And it was necessary to write about these subjects because, as Peter says in verse 6, they are judged in the flesh as men. That phrase indicates that these believers died as a result of the suffering. The oppressor saw no benefit in being a Christian and believed that the suffering Christians endured was just. Furthermore, it was believed that by putting Christians to death, Christianity could be defeated. Pliny the Younger, A.D. 61 to 113, Governor of Pontus and Bithynia wrote the following statement. Now, this is important because Paul, or excuse me, Peter is writing to believers in Pontus and Bithynia. Here's the governor of Pontus and Bithynia. Here's what he says. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. 
I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Many persons of every age, rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition, that's what he called Christianity, a contagion of superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. That's what Peter's referring to. They are judged in the flesh as men. While unbelievers believe there is no benefit in becoming a Christian, Peter has the final word. They may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Though believers experience physical death, they will live in the Spirit. That is, physical death is not the end. God willed that the believer's soul and spirit live on in heaven, awaiting the resurrection of their new physical bodies. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. 1 Corinthians 15.54 When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And such a truth is an encouragement to continue enduring the slandering and suffering. Now, Peter's final statements in verse 6 drew from the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 3, 1 to 6. His reference to the wisdom of Solomon does not make it inspired by God. However, it was a well-known text amongst Jewish believers and provides insight into what the early Christians believed. The text states this, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise they seem to die and their departure is taken for misery. And their going from us is to be utter destruction, but they are in peace. For though they be punished in the sight of men, yet it is their hope full of immortality. And having been a little chastised, they shall be greatly rewarded. For God proved them and found them worthy for himself. As gold in the furnace hath he tried them and received them as a burnt offering." There are three parallels between 1 Peter 4, 6 and Wisdom of Solomon 3, 1 to 6. One, the unwise or unbelievers view the death of the righteous as a punishment. Two, the present sufferings of the righteous are temporary. And three, the righteous have a future hope and immortality. Friends, in a day when suffering and slander are increasing, you and I must maintain our responsibilities in a hostile world. First, we need to be prepared to suffer. We need to think the same way about suffering as Christ did. Don't try to avoid it. Humbly embrace it and use it as a witness to the lost. Second, we need to live according to the will of God. We have spent enough time living according to the desires of our flesh. Whatever time we have left on planet earth, we must live it seeking to know and do God's will. And finally, we must not live like an unbeliever. We have been set apart by God and called to be holy as He is holy. That means we must be different from unbelievers. We must stop engaging in those behaviors associated with unbelief. And as well, believer, you would do well to remember that slander and suffering may come when we live differently. However, you do not need despair. God will execute judgment on behalf of His people. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for this text, even with its interpretive difficulties. Because, Father, it is a text of encouragement. We don't suffer for nothing. We're not slandered for nothing. Father, you have a plan and a purpose in it. And, Father, I pray that when suffering does come, when slander does come our way, that, Father, we might embrace it humbly, that in turn it would remind us that we've been, if we're suffering for righteousness' sake, that sin no longer controls us, but also that we can use it as a witness to a lost and dying world, that they might see us and be curious as to what makes us different. Father, I pray that we would redeem the time, that whatever time we have left, that we would live it pursuing your will. Father, I thank you that you've revealed your will to us. We don't have to buy books and spend money trying to track down what it is. It's right here in your word. I thank you for that. And Father, I ask and pray that you might help us to no longer live like unbelievers. Father, that we would no longer identify with the lifestyles that they lived. But that, Father, we might walk in the newness of life. Yes, Father, we'll be different. Yes, Father, we know that suffering and slander might come. But, Father, we can rest in being different, knowing that even if it costs us everything, Father, those who cause our suffering and slander, you will judge at that great white throne. Father, I thank and praise you to know that you're not ignoring us, but, Father, you're compiling all this information and are going to use it in that great and final day. So, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to do these three responsibilities while living in a hostile world. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.